morning, good morning. Yeah, there you can hear me now. Good morning. My name is, <coughs> excuse me, Ed Griffinhagen. I'm one of the pastors on our staff here at Church on the Trail. I'm thankful that, uh, that you are here. This is a holiday weekend, so there's a lot of people that are doing whatever it is they're doing. Hopefully they're joining with us online as they can on, uh, on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, or in, uh, on our, on our, uh, so it, any of, di of any different social media presences. So I'm thankful that y'all are here. God has brought us here together um, for a reason. I think he's ordained our past across this morning. And we, if, if you've been here really at all in the last, I'm going to say probably a year, we've been walking through verse by verse the book of Acts. That's For the most part, that's the way we preach uh, and teach here is we go verse by verse through, through whatever book it may be. And we've been in the book of Acts for quite some time, but we're going to interrupt that series for just a little bit uh, today. We're interrupting this verse by verse. We're actually going to be in the book of Acts, but we're not going to be this doing what we've been doing. You know, I am, I'm typically a guy that doesn't really get stressed out about stuff. I'm I've pretty much never, Trish probably freaking out because I got in the dark, but I'm moving up to get out of the dark. Was I in the dark a minute ago? I'm asking y'all, was I in the dark? Okay. Now, I'm, now I'm, I was in the dark, but I walked towards the light. That's a good thing to do in church. My point, though, y'all, is I don't really get stressed. I never have really gotten stressed out about stuff. I, I really, virtually every night of my life, I've just, I just sleep like a, like a baby. But for the last little bit, that's, that's kind of changed. And I hadn't really been able to figure out what the deal was. But I do believe that the Lord has impressed on me in a, in a strong way. And, you know, he does things the way he does things. And sometimes you'll just get this feeling inside or something in your head. Or he'll bring a person uh, into your life that will speak some truth. And, uh, and he's done kind of done that in the last week or two. And I feel like I've been impressed. I think he's, he's impressed into my mind that we are not where we ought to be prayer-wise. The Holy Spirit has really convicted me that that's on me. It's on me. I've not led this church well in the area of prayer, and he has impressed on me that I haven't led well in that area because there, are ma there have been major deficiencies in my own personal prayer life. I'm just being real with you all this morning. Major deficiencies. You know, I have not been... I definitely have not been as, we use the word God-dependent. I have not been as God-dependent as I should have been. I have probably been way too Ed-dependent than I should have been and way less God-dependent. Wasn't on my face, on my knees, driving in my car, whatever. I just was not steeped in prayer consistently the way it's really the verse, the couple of verses that James read a minute ago. Have I lived a life of uh, praying without ceasing? I would say really prob probably not. Well, I'm going to tell you it, that it's a new day. That really changed this week, and my prayer is that, that all of us, that we can, we can kind of do that all together, for me personally. You know, if you know anything about my, my life, my growing up, I grew up Jewish, uh, never, never uttered a word of prayer, and I grew up very Jewish, but I never uttered a prayer until I was 36 or 37 years old, and the first prayer was crying out to the Lord to save me. 
So that's the first prayer I ever prayed. I didn't have anybody at home, and I'm not hammering my mom and dad. There just wasn't prayer. Prayer wasn't modeled. I didn't know anything about prayer. Never heard my dad utter one word of prayer, and he was a, quote, he was a good man. Never heard my mom utter one word of prayer, and she was a good lady, whatever defined good, right? But I never had prayer modeled. It just wasn't, it just wasn't part of my life. And when Susan and I met, and she was 14 years old, and I was 16 years old, and she was a, she was a Christian, and we would go, really even from that first year, I would go with her family to, uh, with her to her grandparents' house on Macon Road for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And yeah, I went over there for Christmas because we weren't doing anything at my house for Christmas, so I would go with them, you know. And, and, and so it was for Thanksgiving, it was for Christmas. And they got a massive, huge family. And for the most part, they're a very Christian family, all of them. They got, she's got probably 120 or 30 first cousins, massive family. And I, I remember even the first year, particularly in the years that followed, being petrified that someone in that family would ask me to pray, that someone in that family would say, Ed, you know, say the blessing over the turkey or whatever. And, and I was scared to death of that. It's probably in hindsight silly, but I was scared to death that somebody was going to call on me to do that. And it w- this is what it would have looked like. Had they done it, I promise you, it would have looked just like this. Kids, your hot buns, hot patooties. Wow, Dina, everything looks fabulous. Well, I'll tell you something, it's such a treat for me to have a home-cooked meal like this. Dinner at my house usually consisted of everybody in the kitchen fighting over containers of Chinese food. Oh, you poor thing. What, there wasn't enough food to go around, Greg? No, there was. We just never really sat down like family like this. Oh. Greg, would you like to say grace? Oh, uh, well... Uh, Greg's Jewish dad, you know that. You're telling me Jews don't pray, honey? Unless you have some objection. No, 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 I'd love to. Pam, come on, it's not like I'm a rabbi or something. I said grace at many a dinner table. It's... Okay. Oh... Dear God, thank you. You are such a good God to us, a a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly laying at our table this day and each day by day day by day by day oh dear lord three things we pray to love thee more dearly to see thee more clearly to follow thee more nearly day by day by day amen amen oh greg that was lovely thank you greg that was interesting too dude that's just the height of awkward but i know that's just how it would have been or i would have been somewhere between that and ricky bobby in talladega nights i don't know it would have been it would have been 
It'd have been somewhere, somewhere in there, but but that's the way I felt. I never, if you never prayed, you don't even know what to, how to do it. Who do, who are you talking to, and what to say, and so forth. So today we're gonna we're gonna be talking about prayer. Matter of fact, let me pray for us right now. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we we come to you directly, and we lift up our words of praise and honor and glory. And Lord, we do it because. You said we could. Lord, the veil tore, and you allowed us to enter into your throne room ourselves, and we get to have a conversation with you. And Lord, David Holt called you Abba Father just a minute ago, and Lord, we can come to you that way. We can come to you the way a child speaks to, to their earthly father. And so, Lord, we do pray because you said we can. You made yourself available to us. And so, Lord, this morning we, we ask you to be in the middle of this conversation that we have. We ask you to crack open hearts and minds, renew minds. Lord, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth this morning would be your words and not mine, that you would move me out of the way and do whatever it is that you've got to do this morning. Lord, we thank you for being here. We thank you for being in our midst. Lord, we thank you for your word that we're going to be diving into today. And, Lord, we do lift this up in your son's holy name. Amen. Y'all, you know, prayer really was the lifeblood of the New Testament church. The early believers in Christ, they lived out an attitude of God dependency. They lived and they walked in a posture of being dependent on God. Prayer. Not self-sufficiency. Prayer was the norm. They didn't trust in their own abilities. They didn't trust in their own skills. They didn't trust in their own, in their own brains or in their own, their own intellect or their wisdom. No, they didn't. They trusted in the power of God to accomplish His work, to accomplish His mighty work through the Spirit and through the gospel. But it's not like they just were sitting around doing nothing, waiting on Him to act. No, no, they were... They were actively communicating with him through fervent prayer. Scripture testifies that they were a thousand percent all in, that they, were, that they a thousand percent believed the words of Jesus when he said this in John chapter 15. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, apart from me, you can do some things. He said, you can do nothing. And these words are read in your Bible they're Jesus' words. Apart from me, there's nothing that you can do. And their prayer lives, the early church, their prayer lives was the evidence of just that. Their, their prayer lives was the, was the evidence that they were bought into that. Today, y'all wonder why this ladder's here. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to climb up a ladder. Somebody call 911. We're going we're to climb up a ladder, and we're going to look into the second floor window of a, of a home in Jerusalem. Back up a couple thousand years, we're going to climb up. Now, you may think, well, this is a peeping Tom pastor, but <laughs> we're going to climb up on a ladder. We're going to look into this room in the second floor uh, house in Jerusalem, and we're going to look at a prayer gathering. We're going to look and we're going to see what's going on in that room, and what's going on in that room 
Because there's a whole bunch of folks up there in that room, and they're gathered together, and their arms are locked, and they're, they're devoting themselves to prayer. They're in one heart, and they're in one mind, and they're in one heart and one mind to seek the Lord. We're going to find that the, the huge role, y'all, that, that, that prayer played in transforming plain old common folks, plain old common believers into just uncommon servants. We're going to see how their passionate and their unified dependence on God, they were dependent on God and they were dependent on Him together how that contributes and plays a role to, to, to elevate his name and to display his glory. And what we're going to see, really, when we look in there, is we're going to see a, a common people in constant prayer. Common people in constant, that's the name of the message today, common people in constant prayer. And actually, in Scripture, we're going to be all over the place. But our home base is going to be in Acts chapter 1 and verses 12, 13, and 14. Now, let me paint... And we'll get to that passage in just a second. But I want to paint for you a little picture, now with a broad brush, but a little picture of the way that I see the state of the, and maybe you do too, the state of the modern church. And I think the state of the modern church, that's the church today, and I don't know for how long, but, but today relative to the practice of whole church prayer is pitiful. It's just pitiful. We live in a day of going and doing and busy, 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 and our schedules are slam full, and it's, we're full of activity. And, and the old-time prayer meeting has, has been lost, and it's been lost in the contest for a slot in the weekly schedule when people are free to attend. Everything else seems to be more important. That old-time prayer routine, I guess, it's not sacred anymore. Nor are the time-worn methods of proclaiming the Word of God. Those two things, neither one of those things are sacred anymore. But the proclamation of the Word of God and fervent, devoted prayer lives, those two things are at the heart of the Savior's plan and program for me and you. They're at the heart of it. They're at the, they're at the core of it. Proclaiming his word and being in constant communication with him. A guy named Robert Culver wrote a systematic theology book. He said those two things dare not be laid aside. If we have scheduled them out, we must again schedule them back in. Now I say this. Although maybe this disease of prayerlessness, if that's a word, that may very well infect Christianity today. Prayer was for, for, the, for the, the early believers, for the early Christ followers. It was not an afterthought. It was not just I'll squeeze that in when I got time. It was not a leftover that was delivered up or served up to God once the more important activities of the church or the more urgent activities of the church uh, life had been dealt with. No, no, no. Prayer was considered by these early believers to be an absolute staple that they could not live without. They were truly a God-dependent people. They depended on him for every breath that they took. 
And it's pretty obvious right after, if we just look back, right after the church is born. Right after Jesus ascends to the Father. Acts chapter 1. The disciples obeyed his last command, and his last command was to wait for the Holy Spirit. And they, uh, and they were obedient to his word to do that, at least in part by devoting themselves to prayer. We see it in this passage in Acts chapter 1, in those three verses, 12, 13, and 14. And so as we walk through this little piece of scripture, I want us to think about we're all up on top of that ladder, ladder and we're looking in that window and it's a big room and we're looking in that window and we're seeing what's going on up there. And when we look in there, we see this big, large room where the disciples had gathered with one purpose and that one purpose was to pray, to lock their arms together and to, and to pray. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And this is the they is our Jesus guys and ladies. From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these were in one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And his brothers. So we look into this window at this prayer gathering. I believe three things, three, three elements just kind of jump off of the pages of Scripture. They jump out at us if we're looking at what's going on there. And what we see in that room, y'all, is, is we see a common place that is filled with common people who are involved in constant prayer. You see this common place with common people, and what do they do in that room is filled with constant prayer. And so what you're, if you got, don't have a worship guide, I want you to raise your hand because I want to get one in your hand. And we got some fill-in-the-blanks, and it's going to be a little different today because that first set of fill-in-the-blanks is going to be progressively filled in. But the first thing that we see is we see that the believers are gathered in a common place. In verses 12 and 13, you're going to see those verses up on the screen, verses 12 and 13. So gathered in this second story room are the eyewitnesses. Remember that this is right after he ascends. So in that room are the eyewitnesses of Jesus being lifted up and out of their sight. And it took place on the mount, Scripture says, on the mount called Olivet. So they, and then they had returned to Jerusalem, just like he said to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He said, return. And so they had descended the couple of hundred feet from the mount of Jerusalem, excuse me, from the mount to Jerusalem. And by the way, that's a trip from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem. It's a magnificent view of the city and it's kind of a pitch for the Israel trip next spring because we're going to take that walk. But according to Luke in his gospel of Luke in, in verse, uh, chapter 24, um, they were on a mountain, he says, near Bethany. And he says there also that it's a Sabbath day's journey. That doesn't mean that the thing took place on the Sabbath. 
because Jesus ascended on a Thursday, which was 40 days after his resurrection. But that, that, that phrase, a Sabbath day's journey, is really a measurement of distance. And it's a measurement of the distance, y'all, that, that, the, that the rabbis said, you can walk this amount of distance on the Sabbath, and it won't constitute a violation of resting on the Sabbath. It's 2,000 cubits. Anybody know how how far 2,000 cubits is, about three-quarters of a mile. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he verifies that from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem is about 2,000 cubits, about three-quarters of a mile. And then that upper room where the believers gathered, it's a large space in a house, Scripture says, it's where they were staying. And it was apparently a regular meeting place for the purpose of prayer. And in Scripture, in Acts 1, it says, the upper room. The use of that word the and not a or an tells me that it was probably the very same upper room that they had the Last Supper in because it was the upper room. It was where the Lord gave his promise to send his Holy Spirit. It was a place where the disciples locked their arms together and they locked their minds together and they locked their hearts together in prayer. So from this little spot peeking in that window, we see a common place. We see a common place that's filled with common people. In verse 13, Scripture tells us at the end of the day, at the end of this whole deal, that prayer meeting was about 120 people strong. In particular, the 11 were there. And they're listed in the in the same way as they are in Luke chapter 6, but in a different order and without Judas because by then Judas had already hung himself. Peter and John and James probably listed first because Luke had already planned to focus on their mission kind of activities, their ministries later on in the book of Acts. Peter and John, they were fishermen. Peter's always listed first in any list of the guys, he's listed first, no doubt, because Peter is their leader. John, the younger brother of James, was one of the sons of thunder, Scripture says. The sons of thunder were known for their passion and their zeal. John's often called the one who Jesus loved due to this close relationship that he had with Jesus. And that shines through in his writings. You look at 1st, 2nd, 3rd John writes a lot about, John writes a lot about love. James, the brother of John, is also a fisherman. Just a fisherman. Y'all, he's a regular dudes. He's just a fisherman. But then he becomes the leader. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Ultimately, he is martyred by one of the Herods. Peter's brother Andrew, another fisherman. And it was Andrew who was called by Jesus first who then found Peter and he says, Bro, we have found the Messiah. Andrew says this to Peter. Andrew was kind of the quiet one, kind of lived in the shadow of his big brother. Philip. Philip was also just a common fisherman. John chapter 6, you find Philip freaked out because Jesus said, He's got, you got 5,000 men and all their families. You probably had 10,000 people to feed. And Jesus said, there's a bucket over there. Got a, some fish and bread in it. Go feed them. 
Well, Philip's like, there's no way. He's like, even $10,000 isn't enough to feed all the people that are here. Thomas is in there. Thomas called the twin. Thomas will go down forever in history as being doubting Thomas. Thomas wasn't in that upper room when the resurrected Jesus made his first appearance in John chapter 20 to the 11 guys. Thomas refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the grave. But then eight days later, Jesus, patient Jesus, long-suffering Jesus, walks in there, says to Thomas, put your finger in there, bro. You know, give, give me your hand. Put your hand in my side. He says, Thomas, don't disbelieve, but believe. Bartholomew. Bartholomew, another name for Nathaniel. Nathaniel was born in, in Cana. Anybody know what happened in Cana? Cana, Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. John chapter 2. Bartholomew was a friend of Philip. These are just guys that hung out together, just regular guys. Brought him to Jesus in John chapter 1. Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. The absolute dregs on society. And then James, the son of Alphaeus. He's also referred to as James the Less in Mark 15. And you know what we know about him? Nothing. All we know, all we know about him is this is all that is recorded about him. Simon, though. Simon was like the ninja warrior dude. Simon is a member of a political party called the Zealots. And the Zealots had hoped that when Messiah came, it was time to boot Rome out. All the zealots prayed for the help to overthrow Rome. Judas, the son of James, he's also known as Thaddeus in Mark chapter 3. We see that. He appears in the Gospels, Thaddeus, as this kind of sweet, kind-hearted, gentle, humble guy. Just another, just another guy. Well, y'all, like, what is the point of the last five, six minutes? What, like, what was the point of all that? The point is those now famous men, they're just nothing but regular guys, but they were regular guys who were absolutely God-dependent men. They were men whom the Spirit of God used in mighty, mighty, mighty ways to advance the gospel. The extraordinary thing about these guys is that they were ordinary. God chose ordinary men for His extraordinary purpose. They weren't chosen because of some inherent <clears throat> qualities that they had. They weren't chosen because they were the smartest guys or the best-looking guys or the guys with the most natural abilities. They were just common men, but these are common men who are a shining example of the way God often chooses folks who the world sees as the least likely to succeed. It's kind of what the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26, 7, 8, and 9. He says it's for that purpose of making God's glory and power more obvious. Write down 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. I ain't got time to go down that road, but write it down read those four verses. Because I think that God, and I believe that God loves to take ordinary, regular folks redeem them, and then empower them with the Spirit to walk in God dependency. He doesn't redeem us and, and empower us to walk in Ed dependency. No. It's like a gift to be able and, and, and have the privilege to walk dependent on the Creator of the universe. And that's kind of that's what He does. 
And the clearest mark for these guys, and I think for us now, but the clearest mark for these guys is, is of, their, of their humble, God-dependent spirit is their dedication to prayer. Praying with those 11 guys, Scripture tells us, is the, are the women. Verse 14, undoubtedly it's the women that had followed Jesus from Galilee. And it was Mary and Martha, more than likely. It's Mary and Martha. It's, uh, it's Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas. It's, it's uh, Salome. It's probably Mary Magdalene. And then Scripture, the last time that she is mentioned, Jesus' mama Mary, it's the last time she's mentioned in Scripture. And then the brothers of Jesus, who until just recently had not even believed that he was who he said he was. They were unbelievers. They were present in that upper room. Even six months earlier, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, Mark, excuse me, John chapter 7 tells us that, that even his brothers didn't believe in him. The four brothers are listed in Mark chapter 6 as James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And Judas goes by Jude. So two of those brothers, James and Jude, the Lord pinned some scripture through them. James and Jude. And verse 1 of chapter 1 of both of their letters, they refer to themselves as servants of Christ. Not as, that's my brother. No, they, they, they both refer to themselves as servants. And, and the fact that they don't mention that he's their, their brother, it tells us something about their humility and their servanthood. Those guys had no desire to be big shots. None of them did. But they yearned only to love and serve the one for whom they had denied so long. And y'all, it was common. Hear this. It was common. Anybody in this room royalty? Anybody, anybody go back to King George or something? I'm guessing that most of us are common, regular folks. But you know what the word, the entirety of the scripture tells us? Is that it's common people like these toward whom God turns his listening ear as we are devoted to prayer. To prayer. So in this upper room that we're looking in, seen a common place that's filled with common people, and finally they're involved in constant, constant prayer. They're faithful prayer warriors, all 120 of them. By now, there's 120 of them in there. And they were devoted, Scripture says, with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 14. It was about 10 days, y'all, between the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost. That 10 days was filled with them being on their faces in prayer. Doesn't mean that they prayed 24-7 for 10 days. Doesn't mean that. Luke chapter 24 tells us that they also were uh, praising God in the temple and that they were freely moving around the city. But make no, make no bones about it. Have no doubt that, that every day, I would imagine a few times a day, they met in that room for some extended prayer time. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what they specifically prayed about, but I guarantee you they prayed with specificity. I guarantee you they prayed for certain things, God doesn't want just generic stuff from us. If he is, if we have a, an Abba Father relationship with the creator of the universe, he wants to talk specifics. In this case, I'm sure, in context, there was probably some things 
specific things that they prayed about in their room, up in that upper room, things that would have been on their minds. Don't you think God wants to hear what's on your mind, right? Lynn, he tells you, what's on your mind, Lynn? If I got a relationship with him, for them, I'm sure, they're praying about the wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Come on, Holy Spirit, I'm sure they're up there praying that. You think they're probably praying about his last, one of his last commands to them about being his witness out in the world, about going and making disciples? Promise you, they're praying, Lord, give us the words to say to people when we follow your command to go be your witness. I'm sure they prayed about the need to replace Judas, who had hung himself. I'm sure they prayed about getting ready for Pentecost, fixing to have five, six, seven, eight thousand people coming in Jerusalem for Pentecost. I promise you, Peter's on his knees praying about that. Now, what sticks out to me, kind of like a sore thumb, probably more so than anything, is the witness of Scripture that, ha- that prayer had become habitual. It was this habit that prayer had become for the early believers. Two things make that obvious to me. Number one is this, that they were passionately unified in prayer. It's just obvious. Look at, look at verse 14 of Acts 1. It says they all prayed, they were with one accord. That means with one mind or, or one passion. They were in complete agreement as to the commission that Jesus had given them. And they were determined to obey his instruction to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. With one accord. Unity. Tight unity. That unity plays itself out in the whole book of Acts. We read, for example, that they continued day by day. You thought I was going to say by day, by day, by day. (laughs) But they continued day by day together, together in fellowship and communion. It's in Acts chapter 2. It's the same Greek word that's used here in verse 14 of Acts 1, translated in one accord. They prayed for boldness with one accord in Acts 4, same Greek word. We see many signs and wonders that happened while they were together. Acts chapter 5, same Greek word. The apostles and the elders were of one accord at the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. The same Greek word. There was unity. There was togetherness. They were in one accord. They were in one mind. They were in one passion. They were in one heart. Together, and it's all that togetherness is in prayer. That should mark me and you today. That should mark the church today. Ephesians chapter 4 encourages us, or, or to get a churchy word, exhorts us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity as part of walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Notice it doesn't say that 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 we should create a unity that doesn't exist, like some superficial um, man-made harmony that is absent of, of doctrinal agreement. No, no. Paul writes in, in this verse in, in Ephesians 4 that we are to preserve and maintain the unity that the Spirit has already knit together. Don't y'all know that if you're a Christ follower, our hearts are knitted together? It's like when you own a Jeep. This is not in my notes, but I do own a Jeep. 
Every time somebody who's not a Jeep person is in the car with me and I ride by another Jeep, even if it's a Barbie Jeep, you know, you get the little finger wave. Because our Jeep people's hearts are knitted together. Maybe not. Believers' hearts are knitted together. And so as we submit to the Spirit of God by submitting to His Word, we're more and more united in mind and we're in one accord for the labor of prayer. As we as like-minded Christ followers, as we pray together, God knits our heart together in deeper and deeper affection and He empowers us to accomplish His work together. You know, Paul writes, and he really writes for that reason, a, a benediction in, in, in Romans, in Romans 15. Start toward the end of his letter to the Romans. Starts in verse 5 of chapter 15. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was convinced, y'all, that the same God who produces endurance in the hearts of believers would also join our minds together in order that, what does verse 6 say? In order that we might, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these people were passionately unified in prayer. Number two, they were deeply devoted to prayer. It is obvious their, their, their devotion to corporate prayer is obvious and it is intense and, and it, is, it is passionate. Verse 14 says that they were with one accord doing what? Devoting themselves to prayer. That's a cool word, devoting. It means they lived for it. They were all in, absolutely laser-focused together on prayer. That habit of constantly attending to prayer. It, where did it come from? Where did it flow from? Well, it, flo it flowed from this deep commitment to biblical priorities. Now think about that. It flowed from a deep commitment to biblical priorities. That is another huge pattern for the early church. Look at Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42 is right on the heels of, of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. A few thousand people had gotten saved. First, first gospel-centered message, right? Here's what verse 42 says about those believers. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, devoted themselves to fellowship, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The essential aspects of their life as a church family included being continually devoted to doctrine or God's teaching, to fellowship or God's community, to communion or God's table, and to prayer, which is just God dependency. In our day, it's common. It's common for local churches and even churches that experience huge numerical growth to become so filled up with activities and, and programs and, and plans that prayer 
just kind of gradually gets marginalized. And that did not happen with these people. Prayer was foundational in every single thing that they did. Even as the church, as, as their church, as it began to expand, their commitment to hold church prayer, it didn't, it didn't waver. It didn't, it didn't waver. Go to the next slide. Ministry and lives and forevers are impacted when we become a praying people. That's the message coming out of that upper room, y'all. Ministry and lives and forevers are impacted when we become a praying people. For example, three areas in ministry were immediately impacted because of this, these early Christ followers' devotion to prayer. Number one is this. Major turns in missionary activity, major turns in missionary outreach. They flowed out of their constant attention to prayer. Just look, Acts chapter 10. You'll find in Acts chapter 10, Peter up on the roof of his house. It says at the sixth hour, he went up on his roof, the roof of his house. What did he go up there for? To pray. And it's up there while he's praying in Acts 10 that God calls him to go to Cornelius' house. Well, what, is, what did God do with that? He opened up a huge door for the evangelism of the Gentiles. And it began with Peter up on the roof of his house in prayer. So missionary outreach gets bathed in prayer and God moves. Second, supernatural kind of deliverance from persecution came as a direct result of church-wide prayer, of a church-wide prayer meeting. Acts chapter 12, Peter's thrown in the clink. Peter's in prison. Scripture says in verse 5 that earnest prayer was made for him by the church. He supernaturally delivered out of prison. Peter knew exactly where to go first. Verse 12 of chapter 12 says that he went to the house of Mary, John Mark's mama where they were gathered together and were doing what? Praying. Third, in the book of Acts, when they're selecting the very first missionaries who were Paul and Barnabas, it's affirmed. And it happened, as Scripture says in Acts 13, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And prayer was always inherent in that kind of language because the only reason that you're supposed to fast is to make more time and be laser-focused on worshiping the Lord and praying, worshiping Him and praying. That's the whole reason for a fast, a biblical fast. Again, ministry and lives and forevers are impacted when we become a praying people. You and I individually, and then when we're locked arms and hearts and minds together, and we're praying together. Y'all, the, to the early church, these, these prayer meetings were an indispensable and essential part of their very existence. Charles Finney, who was a, pre, uh, a pastor in the early 1800s, he said this. He said, nothing tends more to cement the hearts of Christians in praying together. He said, never do you love each other as much as when you witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayers. Y'all, the early church, 
they could not fathom a Christian community existing without the habit of prayer. And as a result of that, God often supernaturally jumps in and intervened on their behalf and just did stuff. He did God's stuff. We cannot survive without prayer. We just can't. Devotion to prayer turns common people into uncommon servants of the Lord. It's it's for that reason that we need to be constantly devoted to prayer. God is delighted, and I believe he smiles down on us when he sees his people join hands and join hearts and join minds together in this bond of prayer. If churches across the globe, to include our little church here at Church on the Trail, if we don't learn to pray often, to pray together, to pray biblically, there is no way that we can effectively carry out His will. There's no way. Me and you, gotta, we got to learn to pray. We got to we, we gotta learn how to, we got to learn how to be God-dependent people. We got to learn how to be God-dependent people who constantly cry out for His will to be done. So all that ranting and raving for 35 minutes, what do we, what do, we do with that? Well, I'm going to tell you number one is this. We're going to talk about prayer for a little bit. I don't know how long. few weeks, no doubt, but, but I don't know. I know my commitment to the Lord and my commitment to, to our church family is that I will listen and let God lead whatever it is that we do. We might talk about prayer till Jesus comes back. I don't know. But we're going to talk about it for a little bit. We're going to talk about it for as long as he keeps us focused on it. And I'm going to tell you, it just, it just looks and it, and it feels like something's missing. And if we look at the early church's focus as it was in Acts 2.42, we talked about a minute ago, it seems like we got a reasonable handle on the teaching stuff. It seems like we got a reasonable handle on the fellowship stuff. It seems like we got a reasonable handle on the communion stuff. But just in case, we're going to do communion today. Just a minute, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna partake in the Lord's Supper. Breaking of bread stuff, it seems like we got a handle on that, but I just really feel led that we all together have got to up our prayer life. Now, you should have gotten one of these when you came in today, and if you didn't, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say this, if you don't have one, please raise your hand and let us get one of these into your hand. It's it's a little prayer journal, and we we. It's a for you got your hand up right here. Um, it is a month long little prayer journal for you to write stuff down, and you'll see in it top part there's prayer requests. Write them down. In the middle it says I'm grateful for. What things should we be thankful for? That's a question with an answer required. What things should we be thankful for? James said it just a little while ago, everything. Y'all, we should be thankful and grateful for everything. We should rejoice always. And this is going to help us be a people that, are, that pray without ceasing, right? You'll see down here it says, who will I share the gospel with today? And right here it says, who will I serve 
and encouraged today, and you got a little passage of Scripture under each day. I'm asking us to be committed to doing this, all of us, every day. For a month, just do it for a month. Commit to the month to do this. The gurus tell us if we commit to anything for a month, it'll be a, it'll be a habit. And I'm not even saying spend two hours every morning in prayer. Spend an hour every morning in prayer. I'm not saying spend five minutes at night before you go to bed in prayer. I'm not. I'm saying, I'm asking, I'm begging, I'm pleading with us, with you, to just commit to pray. Just pray. Whatever it looks like. It's going to look different for all of us, I would imagine. But I'm asking you to write the stuff down. If somebody asks you to, to pray for them, write it down. I'm asking you, if somebody asks you to pray for them, write it down, but pray for them right then and there. If you're on the phone, if your friend calls and says, hey, I got this going on at work, can you please pray for me? Do it right then on the phone. Because if you're like me, and maybe you're not, I'll say, sure, I'll pray for you. And then if I'm honest, there are times when I just forget. So I've gotten myself in the habit, I do it right then, and when I do it right then, I write it down, and then I do it, I do it until... I don't want to say until it doesn't need to be done anymore, but I do it for as long as it takes. You ask me to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you for as long as it takes. I'm going to pray for you until you say it's resolved. I, and and y'all, I covet your prayers. So I'm asking you to pray for me. I'm asking you, and, and specific prayers, I'm asking you to pray for me that I would be a humble, godly leader, that I would be a humble, godly husband that I'd be a humble, godly parent and grandparent. Pray for Susan, my wife Susan, because I can tell you that the loneliest job on the planet is the wife of a pastor. So pray for her. Pray for my, my son Zach, his wife Kelly, my grandson little Zach, my granddaughter Caroline, and a soon-to-be third granddaughter. Pray for my, my youngest son Will and his wife Amelia. Pray for the majority of my family who are all lost and going straight to hell when they die. Pray for them. My mom's name is Vera. Pray for my mama. I'm, at, I'm begging you to pray for her because my prayers aren't enough. We need to lock arms. All of you've got friends and family that are lost, I promise you. I mean, I guarantee you do. Pray for them, specifically that the Lord would crack open their hearts that he would reveal himself to them in a way that their hearts would just open up and they would cry out to be saved. Pray for the guidance, for the leaders in our church, for guidance for our church. Pray for each other. Pray that all of us would be obedient to the word and that we would be led by the Holy Spirit and that we would listen and that we would follow. Pray for revival, that the winds and the fires of revival would sweep across Columbus and Phoenix City and the state and the country and the world. And I know that I know that I know that I know that that will never happen until God's people pray for it to happen. Pray for revival. And you look at the world that we live in, and if you were to pick one word, it would probably be depravity. And if you backed up two, three, four hundred years to the early 1700s, you would, the, the answer would be the same. It was depravity. 
God's people hit their knees, hit their faces, cried out to him, and what happened? The winds of revival swept across our nation. Y'all, we need to pray, and we need to be specific, and we need to constantly be in prayer. So I'm telling you this, beginning at 6 o'clock tonight, and every Sunday night after that, until the Lord somehow says otherwise, we're going to meet and we're going to pray in this room from 6 to 7. We're going to seek His face. And it's not going to be a big production. In fact, it's not going to be any kind of production at all. It's just going to be prayer. And you might want to come up here and sit and quietly read your Bible and pray. And you may want to come up in here and quietly journal and pray. And you might want to come up here and kneel before this cross and pray and write your prayer down and tack it to the cross and leave it there. You may want to come up here and pray by this cross and confess the sin in your life, write it on a piece of paper, and leave it at the foot of the cross. Never to be heard from again. Y'all, you may want to just come and sit and just pray. And I'm not asking you to commit to be here every Sunday night at 6 o'clock. I'm definitely not. I'm just asking you to commit to pray. And I'm asking you to commit to your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray together. To pray together. So I'm not asking you to come up here every Sunday night. You come every, every Sunday night if you want to. If you feel led to. I'm just asking us to pray. But this room... This room will be a room of prayer from 6 to 7 every Sunday night at 6 o'clock. Pray that we would live a God-dependent life. In a nutshell, that's probably what we can say. Pray that we would live a God-dependent life. And y'all, you can't live a God-dependent life if you ain't got a relationship with Him. So it all begins with that. It all begins with that. That's the heart of the gospel. I said a minute ago, you could come in here and tack your sins down to the foot of the cross. You got to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You got to own. You got to own that sin, and you got to repent of that sin. Turn away from it and turn towards the Lord. Confess that that death on that cross two thousand years ago, outside the, those gates in Jerusalem, that it took care of that sin, and it took care of that sin forever, and it took care of your future sin your present sin, your past sin, your future sin. Believe that he walked out of the grave alive allowed an opening for you to live with him forever. Y'all, it's the gospel. It's the core message. And then you live in dependency of him. And you lean on him. And when that happened, y'all, you read in scripture that the veil in the temple tore. And that gave me and you open access. We don't got to go through no priest. We don't got to go through no rabbi. I can go sit down and have a conversation with the creator of the universe because Jesus said I could. So, y'all, my prayer today, my prayers from this point on, they're all going to start with, Lord, I'm coming to talk to you because the man in the middle said I could. That's the way every prayer is in my mind. That's the way it's going to work. And so if you've never said yes to that offer, I want you to consider doing that today. Y'all pray with me. Lord, let today be the day that I come into a relationship with you. Lord, I believe that you died on the cross and it took care of my sin. Lord, I turn away from it. I turn towards you. 
Lord, if I say that I'm going to make you my Lord, and Lord, and I'm saying that today, that I'm going to walk a, a life worthy of the gospel. I'm going to walk a life dependent on you. And so, Lord, I admit who I am. I admit my sinfulness, and I cry out for you to save me. In Jesus' name, amen. And I feel led to say this last thing. If, if somebody, some friend, some, I don't know, some whoever has spewed a lie in your ear that you're not worthy of that, that's straight from the pit of hell. And I don't care if it's from a kid or your parents or a teacher or a coach or a spouse. He died on that cross for you. And he will, you leave the sin at the foot of the cross, he will never bring it back up. If, the, if your sin, uh, it could be the worst sin ever. If your sin gets brought back up, it ain't God bringing it back up. So you just tell him to get out of your face. So let me pray and then I'm going to take communion, sharing the Lord's Supper. Norman Dunlap's going to come up and kind of get that going. Again, Lord, we come to you because you said we could come to you. And Lord, I know that there are hearts that have been broken in this room. I know it. I know that there are people that have done things and I'm in the front of the line that they're terribly ashamed of, that they feel terrible guilt over, but we know that you don't condemn, that you don't bring guilt and shame. Lord, you bring healing. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone that is listening here or listening online that if the devil has been throwing little shame darts, Lord, that, that you would just get him out of the way. And so, Lord, I pray that you're, for your spirit to be here, that we would have a sweet time of fellowship here at the end of the day as we lock our arms together and our hearts and our minds and we share in what you commanded us to do 2,100, 2,200 years ago. So we share in the Lord's Supper. Amen.